Welcome back to Capitalist Adventures, where we hope to shed light on the diverse puzzle pieces that make up the VC community. My name is Akash Bhatt, and this is my co-host, Jonathan. Thanks, Akash. I'm particularly excited uh, for today's episode because I get to feature one of my good friends, Ricky Koo from DNX Ventures. So Ricky has spent much of his career supporting the entrepreneurship ecosystem in Asia and specifically likes backing founders building impactful solutions in critical backbone sectors like retail, logistics, supply chain, and marketplaces. If there's anyone I'd consider a doppelganger to myself in terms of background and upbringing and even career, I think Ricky uh, is the closest I've ever found. Uh, So I'm not going to spoil too much right now. Uh, And Ricky, I'll let you tell everyone else uh, more about you and DNX Ventures a little bit later. But first, I'd love to welcome you to this podcast. Thanks, guys. It's a uh, it's a pleasure to be here. A really big fan of the of the premise uh, of, of this podcast. Uh, so really, really excited for about today's conversation. Thanks, Ricky. Today's conversation is going to be epic. So let's just you know jump right into it. Um, so basics first. Give us the 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 elevator pitch on Ricky Koo. Tell us a little bit more about your background, and more specifically, we'd love to know how you ended up in a role where you're doing U.S. and Asia cross-border investments uh, at a firm like DNX. Sure thing. So I was born in Japan, born and raised in Japan for about 18 years, but actually of Taiwanese ethnicity. So my last name, Ku, is actually a Taiwanese last name. And then with an American citizenship. So it was this sort of confluence of three different cultures, like cultures, ethnicities kind of brought all together. And that's essentially the the environment where I grew up. I went to international school uh, in Japan, uh, which is where the English came from. And then, you know, after high school, my, my goal was really to kind of leverage this, this international background that I had and, and try to go into sort of public policy, foreign affairs, and went to Georgetown School of Foreign Service to, to really pursue that career. And we'll try to do that within sort of U.S. and and East Asia, specifically around like foreign policy, American foreign policy with Japan, American foreign policy with with Taiwan, and and did a few internships in the space, but realized public policy wasn't really for me. I actually enjoyed like the rigors and the intensity and the energy that came from the private sector. And also realized that maybe I should work in the private sector before going back into public policy, which is something that I have sort of in the long-term time horizon. So I ended up working at Deloitte in New York as a consultant for about four years, really working with Japanese companies that were operating in the U.S. around automobile, pharmaceutical, retail, consumer electronics, and helping them optimize their financial and operational intercompany transactions. And it was really through that process that I, I got really, really interested in like how intricate intercompany transactions are and realized that there was just so much to supply chain that I just didn't understand and, and wanted to dig a little bit deeper into. So basically took this, took this idea about supply chain and said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig really, really deep into this and went to, went to business school to really sort of explore sort of what angle within supply chain I should be looking at and, and realized that really like entrepreneurship sounded like was something that really, really fascinated me. And it was through that process where I, I met a few VCs and uh, realized that maybe maybe I, I, should, I should try my hand at venture and, and see where that goes before maybe jumping into like a business idea or a certain entrepreneurial idea. And uh, fortunately was connected with DNX Ventures. At the time it was called Draper Nexus Venture Partners and they had the presence in both Japan and the US. 
and they said, hey, you know, you, you're, you're welcome to sort of explore this idea of supply chain with us, build, start building a retail a supply chain and sort of a retail tech thesis. Interned there over uh, the summer in Japan and then joined full-time post-business school in the San Mateo office. And uh, since then, for the past two years, I've been focused uh, almost exclusively on uh, retail and uh, supply chain technology. You know what, Ricky? I think it's so cool that you get to spend your time focusing on retail and supply chain. I think if COVID has taught us anything, uh, it has exposed all of the supply chain imbalances we have from um, dependency on cross-geography suppliers uh, to our reliance on outsourced services and even the deficiencies in our in-house workforces in retail and supply chain as well. Uh, so great that you get the focus here. Switching gears a little bit, I wanted to to briefly touch back um, you know, on a point you made when you were talking about yourself that you grew up in Japan and Taiwan. And as you very well know, Ricky, I also spent time in Japan and Taiwan as well, uh, nearly eight years to be exact. So we have a lot of that in common. And I think our, our kind of you know mutual cultural appreciation for these two countries is, is one of the reasons why we get along so well. But I did notice while I was living there, Japan and Taiwan are very tradition-oriented and conservative cultures, very risk-averse, right? And these cultures don't necessarily encourage younger people like us to pursue entrepreneurship or VC as a career path like they do in the U.S. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of like aliens in their eyes. So have you noticed the same thing when you were in Asia? Um, and also, what can Silicon Valley VCs like us who have actually broken into the industry do to change this perception in Asia and to encourage more young people uh, who were in our position to pursue these career paths in entrepreneurship in VC? Yeah, uh, Jonathan, actually, this is something I, I've given a lot of thought about. I often ask myself, given Japan's political, social, economic condition, why don't we see more entrepreneurs? And I ask the same question in Taiwan as well. And why, when you've got, uh, well, we'll take Japan, for example, right? The third largest economy in the world, relatively stable social political environment, really, really strong ties with the United States, extremely high technical talent and education, and also uh, a regulatory system that encourages entrepreneurship, and actually even a very, very strong capital liquidity market where there is a path to exit. You know, why don't we actually see more entrepreneurs? And perhaps up until about 10 to 15 years ago, it was actually very hard to culturally get into entrepreneurship because the perception of entrepreneurship was so bad. But as Japan's economy started to uh, falter uh, post-1990s, uh, a lot of the sort of lifetime employment measures that the Japanese corporates had put into place were starting to kind of get unhinged. And so as a result, a lot of the salary men and women who were saying, hey, you know what, like, I don't, I don't want to take the risk of starting my own venture. I'd much rather stay in a corporate and have them you know, protect me for the rest of my career, or basically supply me for the rest of my career, are starting to realize that safety net is no longer there. And saying, well, if the safety net is no longer there, I might as well go out and start my own career and start my own venture, start my own company, and, and basically make a business for ourselves. And that is essentially our investment thesis in Japan as DNX. You know, we try to find really smart, experienced, 
former operators within larger companies who then see something in that industry that they're working at and say, hey, you know what, you know, I think I can probably do something even better and quit those companies and then start their own ventures. And we try to look for those people at DNX. In the case of Taiwan, I actually think it's really, really interesting. Right? Same, same situation where extremely vibrant economy, well-connected with the rest of the world, extremely high technical talent. Actually, when you go to Taiwanese uh, night markets, it's thriving, right? And everybody wants to own their own shop. Everybody wants to own their own cafe. And so unlike Japan, where there is this stigma against doing your own thing, in Taiwan, I think that actually that, that sense of entrepreneurship is actually really strong. So then I also ask the question, look, well, if culture is not then the reason why you don't see large amounts of startups in Japan, like what, what is the issue with, with that of Taiwan? Where I've sort of landed on that has been access to, oh, well, I guess close proximity to an even, even larger economy, which is China. And also I think the legacy of semiconductors, which is strong in hardware and the transition into software has been a little bit harder. So that's, that's kind of where I've landed on the reason why we don't see more entrepreneurship in Japan and in Taiwan, respectively. You know what, Ricky, you bring up a lot of really good points here. And as someone who's thought about this topic for a very long time, I think I tend to agree with most of your points here. You know, just to provide a little more context around this, you know, Taiwan is one of the largest economies in Asia, especially in terms of nominal GDP. But they are rooted in legacy architectures and technologies. So the largest industries in Taiwan are services, manufacturing, and agriculture. And, you know, Taiwan's most well known for semiconductor and electrical machinery and equipment. And that falls under manufacturing. But, you know, these are the most robust industries and, and you know, revenue generating industries for Taiwan. So it's no surprise that maybe they're struggling a little bit, you know, in the innovation department. However, I think COVID has has kind of brought this to the forefront a little bit more. Um, you know, I've seen some very positive indications that a country like Taiwan is is trying to promote more innovation uh, and to ensure more kind of equitable distribution of economic benefits uh, and boost more investment in the country. So I'm seeing a lot of stuff happening in the in the pharma and, and biotech sector. Um, you know, Taiwan's manufacturing capabilities were put on full display with PPE during COVID. There's a lot of stuff happening in biomedical, green energy, IoT, uh, smart cities, uh, and even on the defense sector as well. Uh, so a lot of investment, you know, from the Taiwanese government in these areas, uh, which I think will, you know, really push them closer to the forefront of innovation in the future. But you're absolutely right. The transition has been hard. You know, being so close to, to, to a behemoth like China uh, makes it tough because, China has so much access to capital in China, as well as access to all sorts of, you know, engineering, uh, talent and resources, you know, so people and entrepreneurs who, who go to China can build their products very cheap. And in an economy like China, you know, that totally makes sense. You know, I know you mentioned a couple of verticalized challenges that, you know, some of the Taiwanese and Japanese entrepreneurs have faced, but I've noticed that at DNX, you guys have a thesis around supporting talented founders in, in verticalized enterprise spaces. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about that, about the, the broader DNX sector thesis uh, that you guys look at in general. And also from an, from an enterprise perspective, you know, what do you think 
is the most difficult challenge that B2B startups face right now, early on? So DNX Venture, we focus almost exclusively on B2B startups. So we tend to stay away from direct-to-consumer B2C companies. When we say B2B, what we usually mean is companies that are developing tools and solutions to sell into uh, enterprises or SMBs, and it usually falls into five categories for us. Uh, your very traditional enterprise SaaS, cybersecurity, retail tech, fintech, and then frontier tech. Frontier tech is sort of defined as companies that are pursuing really tough engineering problems that might take up until about series B or series C for like a full commercial model. Companies that are pursuing space, satellites, advanced 5G, autonomous vehicles. And so that is to say that you know while while we are comfortable with the more uh, traditional enterprise SaaS sales motions. We're also very, very familiar with like the tough engineering product life cycles that come with frontier tech type companies. The challenges of B2B companies is always about getting data points on product market fit. In the B2C space, because the touch points that you have with customers are a lot more often, it's a lot easier to quantify whether or not your product has product market fit. But when you're selling large enterprise contracts uh, with ACVs of 100,000 plus, 200,000 plus, especially at the early stage, uh, it's really hard to tell, is this product really a good fit for this market? And it's for that reason that we've actually leveraged our corporate LP base to help us determine early signs of, of product market fit. DNX Ventures, we're a financial investor first and foremost, but we have a very large contingent of corporate LPs that have invested in our fund for both you know, financial and for strategic purposes. So they look to us to introduce them to interesting startups that we're meeting on a regular basis. And we actively introduce companies to our corporate LPs and to see, you know, can, can this become a potential partner or a potential supplier or even a potential acquisition target in the future? And we often take those interactions as sort of leading indicators for potential product market fit, especially in the B2B space. If the corporate comes back to us and says, hey, Ricky, you know, that startup that you introduced me to was incredible. This is a product that we've been trying to find for all this time. We finally found it. That to us is an extremely, extremely positive sign. But if on the other hand, they come and say, nah, Ricky, this is something that, you know, we've tried over and over again, and, and, and we know it doesn't work. That also helps us uh, determine that potential product market fit. So that's that's another sort of form of due diligence that we do when evaluating companies uh, in addition to the company's own metrics. This is great context, Ricky. Thank you so much for providing that. And before we move into our first segment, we'd like to talk to you further about retail tech. We'd like you to define what retail tech in your eyes really means. And for our first-time listeners who don't really understand the space as such, how do you add DNX define retail tech as a sector? Sure. So retail tech to me is technology that is used to help sellers sell more things and help buyers buy more things. And that can be in a brick and mortar space in the more sort of traditional way, but it can also be in the e-commerce space. But when we think about the tools and solutions to help people buy more things and sell more things, that can be either in the pre-purchase stage, the purchase stage, and the post-purchase stage. So I'll kind of like walk through each one of those. So the pre-purchase stage is like, what sort of customer acquisition tools can we uh, use in order to get more customers through the door? What sort of product development tools can we use in order to create better products for our customers? 
what are some maybe some supply chain or inventory management or merchandising software that we can use in order to get the right products in front of the right people. So that's kind of like the pre-purchase stage. Then you have the purchase stage, and this can happen either in a brick and mortar space or in an e-commerce platform. And the brick and mortar space, you've got a lot of exciting things like autonomous checkout. You've got computer vision enabled within the store for shoplifting, for uh, marketing purposes, such as uh, a customer moving from one shelf to another and picking up a certain item and leveraging that data to, to then uh, identify merchandising and planogram planning. Uh, also, employee messaging tools, store management tools, advanced POS systems. So these are all these sort of tools and solutions that are helping retailers be more efficient in selling certain things, as well as consumers having a better customer experience when buying certain things. And then of course, then there's another e-commerce section where there's you know, tons and tons of tools and solutions in order to make that shopping experience better. And then there's the post-purchase stage, which is tools and solutions to really make the post-purchase experience really, really good. And actually, this is the area where, where I'm actually most excited about because retailers are so desperate to get customers through the door and they work so hard to get the right products there. And once the purchase happens, they often sort of forget, it's like, oh, okay, you know, once we got the customer, oh, let's move on to the next one. But now that consumers have so many different options for their purchasing, that post-purchase activity is almost as important as the purchase and the pre-purchase activity. And so when we think of uh, post-purchase, what I mean uh, by that is like last mile delivery. I mean by returns and exchange optimization, customer education, customer service, things like customer re-engagement. There's a whole nother suite of retail tech tools and solutions that I don't think actually has been well explored to help retailers really sort of re-engage customers and extend that customer lifetime value. So again, so pre-purchase, purchase, and post-purchase tools and solutions to kind of help retailers sell more things and consumers buy more things. That's, that's kind of how I define retail tech. Thank you so much for that. I'd like to pick up on one of the things that you mentioned in that segment. You know, we've been observing that investments in 2019 as such began to shift away from e-commerce to D2C companies and towards tech that makes physical stores smarter, such as cashless checkouts, as you mentioned, robots that roam around stores looking for empty shelves, and even electronic price tags that can offer targeted discounts. We also have been seeing that funding in in in-store technology has risen almost 60%, while funding for e-commerce has declined by 8%. So could you talk to us more from that perspective as to what are the specific subsectors within retail that's really catching your attention at this point? Yeah. So maybe just like a a little bit of background on why there is a shift towards more sort of brick and mortar retail tech as opposed to e-commerce. Now, I think think it's important to distinguish that 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 is a a pre-COVID dynamic and after COVID, there is perhaps going to be a a shift back into e-commerce. Although From my perspective, I think there is still a lot of innovation to be done in the brick and mortar space in the COVID world. But Akash, to kind of go back to your question on sort of this this shift towards brick and mortar. So I think the first thing and and sort of the most widely discussed reason for that is is around the saturation in sort of the D2C space, where it is extremely, extremely competitive and expensive to get consumer mind share as a D2C company using just the social media and sort of the digital channels that they have. 
And so if you kind of look at customer acquisition costs for DTC companies from 2012 to all the way to 2018, 2019, it's become extremely expensive. And it's for that reason that a lot of DTC companies have been looking at brick and mortar locations as another sort of customer acquisition tool. The other part of it is actually fulfillment, which is another extremely expensive part of a DTC operation. Now that so much of our economy is being powered through e-commerce or delivery, now the prices per delivery is actually becoming extremely expensive. Now, I think there's a lot of innovation that can happen in order to make that more efficient. But as it stands today, in an extremely saturated D2C market, deliveries are still very, very expensive to do. And so the idea of actually having a brick and mortar location where you can either fulfill that last mile more efficiently, or you can actually have transactions occur at the brick and mortar location is actually an extremely efficient and economic decision that DTC companies have been making to date. Now, going to your question about things within sort of brick and mortar that, that get me very, very excited, the grocery space specifically on shelf availability is actually something that I find really, really interesting. I was surprised at how little grocery chains or grocery uh, store operators actually know uh, what is actually on the shelf. I used to think that they have real-time visibility into this, but the truth is they don't. And I think that is an area uh, where a lot of interesting innovation can happen. And the implications of that, I think, are are far-reaching. One is that you have uh, an ability to do actually do your online delivery fulfillment a lot more efficiently. So for example, Instacart, they, they go to the shop and pick up items for certain consumers, but oftentimes you get an error message, oh, sorry, Ricky, you know, the milk that you, you had ordered is actually not available at the store. Well, the reason for that is because there is no sort of real-time connection of what's actually at the store with that of what's available on, on Instacart. Uh, or any of these sort of online uh, grocery platforms, you know, unless it's being fulfilled at the warehouse at level, on, online grocery fulfillment done at the store with on-shelf build availability, I think uh, there's a lot of exciting things that can happen there. Okay, so I totally agree with you that fulfillment and last mile delivery have a lot of catching up to do. There's, you know, a lot of potential uh, for innovation in those spaces. Uh, Now, what I'm wondering now is how about on the distribution strategy and customer acquisition side, are there any interesting sectors or technologies you're seeing there? Actually, another thing that I'm very excited about is is social commerce. And this actually has kind of two angles to it. One is leveraging the store employees as a sales uh, channel. And there was a company based out of New York and London called Hero, which I think is doing something really, really interesting, which is essentially leveraging the store employees who oftentimes are the the strongest brand ambassadors to actually answer questions that are coming in from e-commerce purchasers, right? So when you, let's just say you go on on a certain brand and you have a question about a certain jeans or a certain shirt, instead of sending that customer inquiry to an offshore customer service center, they send that question to a brand ambassador or a store associate who's intimately aware about the product and and how this product fits with other products in the portfolio. And so, you know, they, they make that connection and it's a great upsell opportunity as well. So that's one way in which, you know, the social commerce within a brick and mortar, I think could be really, really interesting. You know, the second one, I think, is the, some of the social commerce that we're seeing in China, 
right? So you've got these social media influencers who, who go into certain stores and in real time interacting with some of their followers, uh, putting on certain clothing uh, and actually making purchases right inside the store. So I think those are some of some other things that, that get me really, really excited about the future of brick and mortar retail tech. I'm glad you brought that up because you mentioned social commerce, you spoke about fulfillment centers, and you also spoke about the shelves as such. When the crisis is behind us and everyone has a chance to breathe, what kind of technologies do you think retailers will deploy to shore up holes in their supply chains, demand prediction, and emergency responses? Or especially in the last six months, what have you seen that has never happened before in the retail industry? So, you know, I think... There is only so much that technology or some tool or some service can do to rebuild consumer confidence. A lot of this is economic, specifically if you lost your job or you got a huge pay cut, you want to cut back on discretionary spending. Some of it may be health concerns. I think one of the big issues that retailers are facing right now is trying to create a safe shopping environment for for their consumers. And we are all living with a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety about the risk that we're putting ourselves in every single time we leave our house. So I think there there is only so much that technology can really do to alleviate some of that, that concern and stress. But at, and at the same time, some of the retail tech companies that, that we've been speaking to on a regular basis uh, have been making amazing adjustments to their product uh, in order to address the, these, these new concerns. So, for example, like contactless payments in the U.S., at least compared to, to China, I mean, mobile payments is lagging significantly. But as people become more skeptical about handing their credit card to the the store clerk or to their waiter, you know, I think this is a fantastic opportunity for something like contactless payments to get better penetration here in the U.S. Robotics, for example, you know, we were looking at a few on-shelf availability robotics companies that were essentially trying to substitute the store clerks, you know, daily check the on-shelf availability and it, it was a little bit hard to kind of justify that capital expenditure in the non-COVID era. But now in the COVID era where, you know, you're trying to reduce the amount of time that a store clerk spends in the store in order to reduce that risk of exposure, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity for something like robotics to take off here in the U.S. I think what was really interesting is kind of looking at the case in China. Uh, I think China, for, for in the retail case, has as far... Uh, exceeded the U.S. in terms of adoption of advanced technology. In the case of some of the sort of the new retail tech robotics that were uh, implemented in China, a lot of exciting things that were happening. Uh, what was I think extremely uh, interesting was what actually stayed once the sort of the shelter-in-place restrictions were were eased. So, for example, the last-mile delivery robots in in China really took off during the COVID era. But then once the restrictions start to ease, then I think a lot of the people wanted to get out and a lot of the deliveries then shifted to, to say, human-powered deliveries. But robotic sanitation in China also took off during the COVID time, but that stayed, right? And so it, it, it's kind of interesting to look at other countries and see, well, how, like COVID did serve as somewhat of a catalyst for certain of, of this sort of advanced technology, but it's interesting to see what stays and what doesn't and how that might translate here in the U.S. 
Great thing. And one can't help but notice all of the high-profile bankruptcies that have been happening in and around the retail space lately. J. Crew, J.C. Penny, and now in Brooks Brothers. Muji's U.S. subsidiary also filed for bankruptcy, as as well as other, you know, many other companies that we've been looking at this space. What did these companies do wrong, in your opinion? Can any of these companies recover post-COVID? Yes. Unfortunately, there were a lot of bankruptcies that occurred once the, the COVID crisis hit extremely hard. I think the way I see sort of the retail landscape is that there are very clear winners and losers in this space. You know, you've got grocery chains, e-commerce, even home furnishing. Uh, those sort of retail segments have done disproportionately better than, say, outdoor sports equipments, formal event wear. And so I think there is a very, very clear sort of bifurcation in the retailers who have thrived in the COVID era and then retailers who, who suffered in, in the COVID era. Uh, I also uh, believe here that technology does play a large role, but at the same time, uh, technology is only one part of the solution. I, I believe that it has to be a mixture of really, really strong company values, great customer service, and understanding of what consumers want, and technology really as sort of a tool and solution to, to, to power each one of those things. I don't think there is a sort of a silver bullet for any of the sort of the, the, the poor performing retailers to kind of leverage technology in order to kind of propel themselves into the next stage. You know, speaking of tech-driven retail companies with a strong consumer base, and a very strong value proposition for everyday consumers. Let's address the obvious elephant in the room here. China versus the US, Alibaba versus Amazon. You know, two heavyweights duking it out with each other in the retail space. But, you know, what I've noticed here is China is completely dominating e-commerce right now, uh, and quite significantly uh, as well. If you look at some of the numbers, I think in 2019, Uh, China's e-commerce sales hit over 860 billion. And at the same time, the U.S. was at 360 billion. So not even halfway there. And I think China is actually, you know, projected to spend over a trillion dollars online this year. Uh, But given that, you know, China has the largest online e-commerce population of over 700 million people. That's not necessarily surprising, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on why China is able to outpace the U.S. e-commerce industry uh, by so much and what the U.S. has to do to catch up. Just to just to also plug in, I'm going to add India into the context to make this a little more complex for you. And what have you learned and seen from all of these three countries? So I'm, I'm not entirely sure how well I can speak uh, about India. I'll try my best, but actually to make this conversation even more complex, let's throw Japan in there. So uh, let's start with China and, and, and the U.S., you know, the big e-commerce players, uh, Alibaba and Amazon. One, one of the things that I think a lot about is tech adoption and the way in which people do commerce in, in the digital world. So I think one of the reasons why Alibaba has done extremely well or e-commerce in general has done extremely well in China is is also because the fact that mobile payments and digital payments 
was so, the penetration has been so high at such an early stage of China's sort of recent sort of tech uh, emergence. In the case of the U.S., uh, payments also, it's, it, you know, mobile payments, uh, digital payments is coming up, but it's not as strong or as robust as it is compared to that of China. In the case of Japan, actually, what I think is really interesting is Japan is very much a cash-based society. And despite being the third largest economy in the world, e-commerce penetration is only about fifth or sixth. And I think a large reason for that is because of um, the inability or the, the lack of willingness to actually do commerce uh, online. And so when thinking about what are some of the, the white spaces within e-commerce space, I think in the case of Japan, more digital adoption of digital payments, I think, is, is one of the areas that I think will really serve as a catalyst for, for e-commerce. You know, I think the, the fact that Alibaba is really a sort of a multifaceted company that is in payments, that is in e-commerce, that is in advertising, that is in content, that I think uh, has, has served uh, Alibaba quite well in terms of all the cross-selling opportunities. You certainly see Amazon doing exactly the same thing. In the case of Rakuten, that's, you're also seeing that as well. And so you know, I think the most successful e-commerce players are those uh, who are able to start with, with e-commerce, but also build various services around it for more cross-selling opportunities. Okay, so we've talked about China, we've talked about the US, and we've talked about Japan. So essentially, we've got one side of the spectrum here, which is large countries with large user bases and strong e-commerce activity. But how about the other side of that spectrum? What about emerging markets and geographies? What are some of the up-and-coming countries uh, with a burgeoning, growing e-commerce base uh, and you know, countries that have perhaps underrated e-commerce and digital retail infrastructure. And taking that one step further, within these emerging markets, what are some interesting startups that you're seeing? Actually, one, of, one geography that I'm extremely, extremely excited about is Israel. Uh, Israel, perhaps known more in the tech industry as being sort of a cybersecurity, sort of a tech innovation hub, but actually a lot of that great talent is now realizing that that technology and that sort of rigor and engineering can also be applied to, to e-commerce. And so there are tremendous amounts of really, really great entrepreneurs who are pursuing retail and, and retail tech as their next sort of startup mission. The types of, the types of retail tech companies that are emerging out of Israel re really run the gamut. Israel has been really strong in machine learning and computer vision. And so there are a lot of sort of automated checkout systems. One that comes to mind is Trigo Vision. They recently signed a partnership with Tesco to bring in their automated checkout solution into a relatively large store uh, storefront. I think the, the, the Amazon Go square footage the Excel robotics, the iFis, the Zipins, the standard cognitions that we see here in the U.S. have been sort of a lot more of a sort of a smaller store footprint, whereas Trigo Vision is saying, we want to take that technology and, and scale it out to a much, much larger store footprint, which is extremely, extremely difficult to do and, and a very, very commendable engineering sort of task that they're taking on. So you know, I, I, I tend to find those entrepreneurs and, and those types of companies to be really, really exciting. But that's just in the brick and mortar space. Uh, a lot of companies also pursuing last mile delivery optimization, 
uh, a lot of companies pursuing contactless payments, uh, a lot of companies pursuing a better sort of product development software, ERP optimization. So I think there, there are tons of Israeli entrepreneurs who are looking at the space and saying, look, there's so many things that we can improve on and apply some of the engineering rigor that they've developed uh, during the Israeli Defense Force period, as they often tend to come from, to the retail tech space. And when thinking about why this actually happened, I feel like a Harvard business uh, case study should be done on this, but the, the, the impact of Shufacell is the uh, largest grocery retail in, in Israel. And they have done an exceptional job at seeding, encouraging, testing, and even deploying a lot of next generation retail technology. And that actually has been a great catalyst for the retail tech uh, ecosystem in Israel. And so if I were to look for the next sort of frontier of retail tech technology, I would look to Israel. Awesome. Now moving on and coming back to the United States, one of the sectors that I'd love to talk about is the fitness industry. And I can't help but bring up Lululemon's acquisition of Mirror in the home fitness space. Now, Lululemon's net sales dropped about 17% this past quarter, but its online sales increased 70%. And you can say the same thing about Peloton as well, for instance, where their revenue went up by 66% this last quarter. What are your opinions on retail brands trying to enter the experiential sectors? And do you feel that more brands within the same space will try and adopt a more omni channel experience strategy to acquire new customers going forward, combining both a hardware, software, and a broader strategy to to acquire more customers and grow their brand, perhaps even outside of the United States? Well, I I certainly think that Lululemon is head and shoulders above its competitors in in thinking uh, about a true omni-channel and omni-experience so I think there's, there's a tremendous amount that other brands and retailers can learn from Lululemon and the team over there in creating that kind of experiential commerce. You know, I think the, the acquisition of, of Mirror makes a tremendous amount of sense for Lululemon. I think they were able to get Mirror at a, at a tremendous discount given the amount of uh, investor interest in in-home fitness equipment and also looking at sort of the valuation of Peloton. So for example, Peloton is trading at uh, $17 billion at market, market cap, and they're coming in at $360 million in revenue. Mirror was uh, $100 million uh, annualized runway, but was sold at $500 million. So Lululemon, I think, definitely got the better end of this. But, you know, the integration is going to be tough. You know, I think Mirror has done a relatively good job at bringing in Lululemon ambassadors onto its platform. And so I think that that connection is there, but post-merger integrations, especially between these kind of established clothing brands and a, an emerging tech company, those, those things always take time. It's always going to be a challenge. And, and so, you know, we'll see how, how this all pans out. But as it relates to sort of experiential uh, commerce, when it comes to experiential commerce, you know, I think there has been a lot of investment in sort of the brick and mortar space in order to create that sort of new type of uh, commerce customer journey. But in the time of COVID, you know, we have to start wondering, like, if the customer journey does not involve a brick and mortar anymore, how do we also provide that experience, right? Is it through 
uh, a tool like Hero where you get connected to a store employee? Is it more social media content? Is it more interactive videos? And so, you know, I think Lululemon's strategy to acquire Mirror in that sense makes, makes perfect sense because they're bringing that experiential commerce opportunity that they, that they were sort of pioneering in the brick and mortar space and now into uh, the home. Now, historically speaking, brands are known for product design, supply management, and brand marketing, wherein retailers focus more on context, customer service, and servicing the transaction. But today, that's not really the case, right? The lines have blurred between brands and retailers. Uh, Retailers are brands today and brands are retailers. They're basically challenging and changing the economic models of the past. Apple's a prime example of a company that's both a brand and a retailer. What, in your opinion, might be the challenges for Lululemon going forward to justify and diversify this investment? That's a really, really great question. Lululemon, I think, from a very, very early stage, has been bringing tech adoption onto their company roadmap. For example, like the CEO of Mirror used to be a Lululemon brand ambassador, and that connection was already quite strong to begin with. And so when thinking about, and and so as a result, that sort of that merger option became uh, a lot more viable and it made a lot more sense. When looking at other brands who, who should think about sort of diversification you know, I think they should, they should very much follow the playbooks that Lululemon did with Mirror and look to other sort of fast-growing technology companies and see if they can support that ecosystem, bring that company into that, that ecosystem and, and sort of enrich the customer experiences for their customers. But again, Lululemon is, a, is an apparel company, even though it has a very strong tech sort of DNA in it. And uh, I think it'd be very, very interesting to see that that sort of that sort of difference in culture and how those two things come together. Okay, so here's a little bit of a curveball to end this conversation. Let's make things a little bit interesting. So, on the topic of M and A, um, I want you to remember back to the Uber acquisition of Postmates and the Just Eat takeaway acquisition of Grubhub. So that happened in the middle of 2020, and at this point, I'd like to call out. Ricky Ku, the policy and government expert, uh, to comment and react to this subject. But first of all, considering that those acquisitions were announced within weeks of each other, are you worried at all about the rapid consolidation in this space? Also, if you remember prior to those deals that happened, Uber tried to acquire Grubhub, but there were several antitrust concerns that blocked that. So my question there would be, do you think Just Eat Takeaway's successful acquisition uh, of Grubhub, do you think that alleviated these regulatory concerns? Uh, and do you think future consolidation attempts in this industry will face the same kinds of challenges? Well, I think, thankfully, Postmates' market share is, is slightly less than that of Grubhub, if I'm not mistaken. And so the consolidation of Uber and Postmates don't perhaps ring as many bells from an antitrust perspective as does an Uber and Grubhub acquisition. Yes, yeah, I think I think there still is going to be a, a tremendous amount of regulatory scrutiny in sort of the Uber and, and Postmates and Just Eats 
and, and Grubhub acquisitions. The, the thing is, you know, I think we all knew that consolidation was, was going to happen because the competition is, is getting so intense and a, a lot of the, the aggregators have been providing essentially sort of artificially low take rates and basically creating these unsustainable unit economics. And it's for the reason that you know, DoorDash has been raising a tremendous amount of money and a lot of people have, have criticized that they're essentially sort of funding their growth through venture capital dollars. And so as you reduce the number of competitors, then you know, customers will probably have to get a little bit worried that now that consolidated entity is going to try to increase take rates because you know, they have no competition against. And also restaurants also need to be a little bit worried that you know, they're going to be losing sort of that negotiating power against those aggregators, right? In the past, they used to say, hey, you know, Uber eats, please provide us maybe a little bit more of the service fee. Otherwise, I'm going to go to Postmates. Now Uber is Post, Postmates is Uber. You're going to have to be a little bit worried that restaurants uh, would be more hesitant to be providing uh, online delivery now that the service fees might, might be a little bit less than it was before. Okay, so let's bring all the major themes of this conversation together. The last topic about food delivery consolidation has got me thinking uh, about how there's a lot of conversation right now about fee caps and restaurants having low margins and having to eat significant losses when it com- comes to adopting these delivery platforms. But they don't really have much of a choice right now and they have to do it to survive. So bringing big tech back into the picture, I wonder if a company like Amazon or even Walmart, I mentioned Walmart because you see a lot of news articles about Walmart launching two-hour delivery services for groceries uh, and similar competitive features uh, to Amazon. And I wonder, you know, these two giants seeing significant opportunities to fight each other in the e-commerce space. What are your thoughts on how they're going to approach their acquisition strategy moving forward, whether it be in the restaurant technology space, especially considering Amazon owns Whole Foods and has their you know own grocery delivery services? Do you see a company like Amazon consolidating the space further, or are they going to build their own service internally? And how do you see that playing out? Both Amazon and Walmart are uh, extremely smart and will be very, very careful when it comes to the buy or build decision. Walmart over the past 10 to maybe even 20 years have really, really built out a very robust technical and engineering workforce. Amazon, of course, to begin with, was an extremely uh, strong engineering and, and technical company. And so the the hurdle for a, a buy option for, for the, these two companies is, is quite high. And they really need either a great existing market at which they'd be able to acquire. So for example, Amazon's acquisition of, of Whole Foods, Walmart's acquisition of Jet. You know, there was already a large uh, customer base and revenue base that they can just kind of tap into that allowed them to sort of further accelerate whatever sort of strategic vision that they had. So in the case of Walmart, it was it was to get a brick and mortar uh, location that allowed them to do last mile delivery. In the case of Walmart, the acquisition of Jet was to kind of build out as e-commerce. So it has to be both. It has to be both a existing 
really strong customer and revenue base that is adding uh, material benefit to their PL plus a, a really good contribution to their to their strategic goals. Because when it comes to tech, when it comes to pure technology, I'm very skeptical that Amazon needs to rely on a startup to, to make it happen. Yes, like don't get me wrong, a lot of them make small sort of inve- small sort of acquisitions here and there, but something that really really moves the needle for them, I, I, I find it hard to believe that that they would actually make a move. It's just so fascinating to observe how big tech companies like Amazon, Walmart, and Apple, and several others are kind of sitting on the sidelines observing all of this activity happening from a bird's eye view, especially in the retail and e-commerce space, and then trying to speculate and figure out how they see post-COVID lifestyles and how that's really going to change their acquisition strategies, sales channels, consumer marketing campaigns, uh, and several other parts of their operations moving forward. It's such a fascinating topic. But Ricky, we're kind of at the end of our time now. And I know we can spend hours and hours and hours talking about anything and everything. Uh, so thank you so much for such a dynamic conversation. We would certainly love to have you back on the podcast in the future. But before we jump off, I'd love to give you a chance to tell our listeners how they can connect with you. Where can they find you? You can either find me on LinkedIn. You can just send me a a message there. Search Richard Koo, or you can send an email to Koo, K-O-O, at dnx.vc. We'll make sure we add all of those links in our episode notes. Thanks again, Ricky. It was a pleasure having you on the show. If all of you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. And until next week, keep hustling, people.